Kia Ora from Victoria University of Wellington. Our podcast gives you the chance to catch up with our academics and guest speakers who lead thinking on the big questions facing society. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Tēnā te mihi kia katoa katoa. Nō Zambia i whānau mai ai. Nō Ingari, nō Noe i tipu aka o. Ingari e nohiana aku. Ki te awa a taia. Ko Stephen a hau. Assalamu alaikum, uh, Your Excellencies, Jennifer, uh, Prime Vice Chancellor, colleagues and guests and students from a long way away, welcome. My colleague Rari Tawa uh, calls me Kornenene, which means the drifter or the nomad. I could have been worried or insulted when he first called me this, um, a bit like a butterfly on a cabbage leaf jumping from butterfly, uh, from cabbage to cabbage. Um, but I thought about that. There are two kinds of stories in the world. There are the stories between the sky father and the earth mother, the people who have lived in a, a community or a village or an iwi over time, and there are the stories from people who come across from the seas. We all bring stories together, and that is a central motive for what I will be saying today. I'm going to briefly cover three stories. One is about Norway, a country on the other side of the world, diametrically opposite to New Zealand. Talk about the old and the new, and also New Zealand. It'll be a story about what happened or happens in these kind of events. The second story is about well, what is the most important demand that is placed upon all education? And why do we need to do that? And the third story, so what can we do? You might be sitting there wondering, to listen to stories, is that why you're here? But stories are an important part of knowledge. And we can say that knowledge only becomes human if we organize it in a story or a narrative. And a narrative is only meaningful if it talks about events that have happened in the world. The first story. So Norway is a country which is on the other side of the world. Population, just the touch bigger than um, New Zealand. But it's the same, mountains, snow, wind, forestry, milk products, fish, oil, gas. There are a few differences, of course. The Norwegians decided to take out all of their oil and gas. Um, they don't have earthquakes. They have experienced colonial uh, ex uh, experiences with their First Nation people called the Sami, who live in the very north. And so too has New Zealand its own colonial history and colonial wars to talk about. There's an image which I really like. It's about drying fish, which they've done for a thousand years in Norway. 
And that fish is exported all over South America to Europe to make a dish called bacalao. So the old traditions, they are there. And of course the traditions in New Zealand, we have those as well. But everything changed. In Norway, on the 22nd of July 2011, a Friday, the Labour youth were having their annual summer camp and one particular person decided to try and blow up the Prime Minister's office in the capital and then he drove um, to this island where they all were and proceeded to kill many people, many youth. In total, 77 passed. If we fast forward to the 15th of March 2019 in New Zealand, also a Friday afternoon. In Friday prayer, one person proceeded to uh, kill 50 and then a, a, a third person passed some time later. These monumental events, they change everything. The Norwegian Prime Minister of the time, Jens Stoltenberg, phrased it in the following way. It was one Norway before, and after the 22nd of July, it was another Norway. You could walk around Norway on the Saturday in big cities or small cities, and there was total silence. People lived in shock. How could that happen in a country such as Norway? Nobody would ever have thought that could happen. A country known for its endeavors in creating peace in the Middle East and in other parts of the world. And that silence is a key point. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern also said in Parliament, he will, when I speak of him, be nameless the person who has committed these acts. A different kind of silence, but again, silence and shock. So these were the events. Why did they happen? A German gave a famous radio talk in 1966, and in it, he opened with this sentence, the most important demand placed upon all education is that Auschwitz should not happen again. He was a German Jew who had lived in America and he had come back to Germany afterwards. And for him, it was important to understand, well, why did it happen in Germany that we could go and kill our own people? And he looked back in history and he pointed out that after the Second World War, Germany had experienced humiliation. Inflation was terrible. Things looked very dire. And he commented, it's hard to change the economy or politics. Maybe we should look to how we change personalities. So what was happening in Germany in the 30s? It was a time when mothers and fathers and families could not keep the respect of their children. There was a need for strong figures, replacement fathers, leaders, who would then carry on terrible atrocities. There was also a program of education 
in that time. It was about making the children hard to lack empathy, to show how strong you were. Throughout the system in terms of after-school events or associations, people became harder. He concluded that there was a time when people didn't develop independent thought. People were taught to just obey and not be critical. For him, his advice was twofold. It was to always be on guard for when these things might suddenly take root. And secondly, in the schooling sector, we should always be teaching people empathy. It's very difficult in the situations in Norway and in New Zealand. It wasn't the same as in Germany. It wasn't a whole movement. But at the same time, it was also to about individuals. There's a famous Norwegian author who writes uh, documentary pieces. And she studied the two people who committed these atrocities, the Norwegian, and also had a brief look at the person who committed the atrocity in New Zealand. And she said, it's interesting, they both wrote, wrote manifestos. One 1,500 pages, 174. The second one quoting the earlier one. And she says, you can look at the Norwegian guy and you're looking at his upbringing. He was very much a loner. Already, when he was three or four or five years old, People had noticed he was different, but the social services and the schooling sector didn't pick it up. By the time he was 20, he was already looking for other forms of friendship, and he went to the dark side, that side of the internet. He was a, a person who'd been bullied at school, had no friends. And for him, his justification was a mixture of rage and self-pity, similar to many of the personality traits we find with the person who committed these atrocities in New Zealand. For Norwegians, it was a terrible event. This was one of their own. It was very hard for Norwegians to come to terms with that. And my view is that this will be something which will take different paths in New Zealand for a long time. You can point the finger at the services that should have picked this up, whether they are security services, social services, or the education system. It's very, very hard. So if we've talked about what happened. And we talked about the personalities, people who might have been responsible. We can move across to the ought. What, what should education be doing? 
In this story, I'll talk about different ways of looking at the educational points of view. This particular image here is of the Norwegian kids who've suddenly done very well in mathematics. More importantly, they were better than the, the Finnish people, which was a big deal for the, the Norwegians. This whole idea of looking at us as a global society, comparing ourselves with each other, I think is important. We often think we're the only people experiencing things. We're not. In Scandinavia, when they talk about 21st century skills, they have a phrase. Donaldsa, a decim story en, et alta glimpt. Being a fulsome person in a culture, bildung, is what remains after you've forgotten everything you've learned. It's a paradox. We go to school, we teach people subjects. And what this famous educator is saying, who lived around 1900 and worked in the early childhood space, is that it's the things that you stand again with at the end of your education that are important. For Scandinavians, it's a feeling of belonging to a culture, of having a strong identity, a feeling that you belong. It's a key thread through the whole education system. In Norway, for example, this is the primary goal of education, to be well-formed, to be part of society, not outside of society. What does it mean in New Zealand? What might we want? What would be our ideal of understanding what is education? Here's a poem I wrote, Ocean between Tupuna and Mokapuna, grandparent and grandchild, on the porch always to be repainted, peeling a story, silver-feathered silence, strong-backed and stubborn, carried by the whistling spring to ocean, our ocean, the sailcloth stained red, red the fish heads thrown back, to bait the dreams of other childhoods, of eyes turned down and precious thoughts kept for another day of arms moved inward in sleep, our shelter. The metaphor or the image is of that connection between the grandparents, Puna meaning spring, the grandparents are the spring of what has been, the history, that vertical line. Mokapuna, the grandchild, Puna again, the spring of what is to come. We all carry this image within us of connecting what has been with what will be, of connecting our grandparents to our grandchildren. In all cultures, not just Maori culture, that is central. Easily talked about, hard to realize. In the busy worlds we live in, where we might have many jobs, it's hard to find those moments when you can sit on the porch and just talk and share those stories. The second perspective, in Arabic culture, tabia, a key phrase, 
in Arabic culture and learning, the key point is to develop your moral character as you grow. Grandparents are, of course, central, and parents, of course. How you show how you are is how you become. What we see in these cultures, the Scandinavian culture, the New Zealand culture, and also in the Arabic culture, is the point that education is about moral upbringing, about being able to be formed as part of a culture. And there are different ways that it is done in each culture. In Tabia, it's about growing that noble feeling. In Scandinavia, the same. There are bridges. We are apt to think about different worldviews, that the Arabic world is different to a Scandinavian world or a Maori world. But we have to remember that the science which we live by in a university such as Victoria University of Wellington has its roots in Aristotle. And who were the people who translated the Greek of Aristotle for the Western world? It was the Arabic language, the Arabic people. There are bridges. It is not a case of one is scientific and one isn't. It's always about the bridges, what we share. So I've talked about cultures. So what do I think? Once, I wrote a book with a colleague, and we were trying to work out, so how do you overcome those harsh events which we all experience individually, collectively, as a society, or globally? And we were interested in a word, resentment, but not the normal resentment you find in the English language. This word, which is resentment, it's about how do you deal with those hardships, whether it might be you don't pass your exam, you face these violent atrocities, a family event, or between friends. And my colleague and I, our view was there are basically two ways. One is you react straight away, a form of spontaneous revenge or reaction to an event. Or you learn to wait. That's the cultivating of that resentment or resentment. And when you look in the educational setting, we spend a lot of funds and resources on anti-bullying, on how to manage the environment in the classroom. I'm minded of people who come from different places across the seas and experience noisy classrooms. It might well be that the children are learning to live out those reactions rather than holding them inside of you and cultivating a form of resentment. We all know to harbor resentment and to plan is not necessarily a good thing but it's not necessarily good also to live out these things. And I think 
what is crucial in that moral value-based education is we have to learn both of these things. We have to learn when to react and say things, but also when to wait. And in education, with small children, we know they are learning that. And somewhere along the line, a moral-based education, which is value-based, has to talk to both managing the difficult ways of reacting or holding that reaction and learning to wait. For education, for children, is learning how to walk the line between both of those actions, to learn when and how, and how to recognize and act accordingly. And I wonder, what are those moments of silence in all cultures, those learning moments, when adults, grandparents, children are receptive to thinking through what it means? When recognizing the other as a learner and a human is crucial, and we learn how to master our resentment or resentment. Thank you very much. Sure, Stephen. Uh, firstly, thank you so much uh, on, on behalf of the university, uh, VicLink, and uh, for, for, for that. Um, for me, uh, just, just somewhat personally, um, coming, coming from VicLink, I mean, our, our, we see our purpose as making, making these things happen. Uh, to, to work for an educational institute such as Victoria University, uh, and to be able to bring the Cabrat program to New Zealand and to have such esteemed guests here and such uh, uh, world-leading thinkers such as Stephen and his colleagues uh, is incredible. That, that's why my job is, is uh, actually really fun and rewarding uh, to, to have events like this take place. So thank, thank you again, Stephen. Um, I'd just like to quickly acknowledge a couple of other people who haven't already been mentioned. Uh, my colleague Jeff Howell, uh, General Manager International Business Development at VicLink. Um, if it wasn't for his sort of hours, months, days of work, uh, working with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and New Zealand and Saudi Arabia, uh, this, this, we simply wouldn't be here at all. Um, uh, also, Rana Daoud, uh, Pam Berry, and uh, Pene uh, Southland, uh, thank you for all your work making today what it is. I know you've also put hours and hours into, into making this happen. So, thank you. Um, We've now got a little, a little moment where we'll, we've got a section where we can have a, a question and questions and answers. Um, looking at the, the guests in the room, uh, educators, academics, uh, excellencies, um, I have no doubt there will be uh, some very probing questions, uh, and, but no better people than the two gentlemen to my left, uh, Stephen and Tahir, to answer those. Um, if I could now... Open the floor, and we'll have a short question and answer session. And then to here, we'll have we'll uh, respond to Stephen's lecture to, to close proceedings. Thank you. Uh, thank you, and it's a pleasure to to be here in uh, Victoria University. Just a question about the reactions of the society in Norway compared to the reactions here in New Zealand. 
can you tell us just uh, some some of these reactions in in the society level, not the political or government or? Well, Thank you. A, I think that's a very very good question. Um, there, there was, uh, in, in, in some senses, uh, when this event happened here, it was very much an echo of what happened in New Zealand. There was a spontaneous outpouring of emotion and solidarity, and, and I think that's really important. It was that piece about learning when to react in a violent manner in revenge or action and when not to. And um, I remember there was significant debate in Norway about the perpetrator when he was actually committing these acts and the Norwegian police found him and uh, some people voiced very clearly and said you should have killed him then. But the Norwegians didn't do that and that I think is something which is ingrained deeply in the culture of you've committed these acts and there will be due process. And I think that is a really important similarity here as well. I noticed that very quickly as well, that there wasn't going to be some kind of violent reaction. It didn't mean that certain people said terrible things in different situations, uh, very right-wing things. But the reaction was about uh, reinforcing those values within society. And that was the really important thing. Um, in terms of the communication, it was very alike. Um, in the sense of, um, you, you might have thought it was very staged in a way that the, uh, the Prime Minister of Norway was reading from um, uh, a script. And you might actually have said the same about Jacinda Ardern, who was the, the spokesperson for those events. But I don't think it was. I think that is what is impressive about politicians as well, that they actually do reach down into their hearts to actually talk about these events and feelings. And I think that's exactly what the Norwegian Prime Minister did. He is now the head of NATO. Uh, and continuing that good work against Stoltenberg. And I think he recently visited, well, I think I know he recently did visit uh, New Zealand after these events. So to answer your question, um, it was a chance for society to show what it really feels, but also about those key values which reach, reached really deep in the culture. And I think that's been the same here. But a very, very good question. What happens next is, of course, the big question. And I think that's the really important question. In Norway, it was a long time of uh, a very long court case. Um, a lot of questions about how you could actually carry out that kind of process, and not the least what you should do with the person afterwards. And I believe New Zealand will have the same. Uh, probably, uh, as we know that as New Zealand as a nation, we are not immune to things like that, that we are not ready, that we and the important thing is the how, uh, when situation like this happen, how we respond. This is the most important thing uh, is, and that's probably we have seen, and the world have seen that how New Zealand has responded, uh, how the other organization has responded, how the Victoria University has responded. Um, they got up, the best people come from all around the world, and they, they're talking about, we got the Professor Abdullah was here, and uh, he, we, um, work together and um, work towards two new papers that they will be introduced to the university and also uh, introducing people like myself as a junk to, to make sure that university been looked after. You know, So I think it it's all goes to leadership, uh, that how leadership respond. And uh, this response has been consistent until now. 
uh, that uh, Prime Minister uh, been uh, working on the most important issue at the moment we have is the online issues that how um, these things goes online viral and 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 uh, there's no control on it and uh, there's a special committee called Christchurch call that has been formed and I'm one of the advisory member to the Prime Minister on this committee so I think I will, I will leave it to that but I think it's, as all goes to the leadership how we respond and it's, it's, it's not a all of sudden response. It needs to be a consistent all the way. Thank you. Hello, Dr. Steven. Uh, this is me, Dunia, and I want to talk uh, your perspective, the second perspective about uh, education in Arabic countries as uh, terbia. And uh, there is a sentence that uh, in our, our Arabic countries, from your, uh, that, that perspective, as uh, we are, we, uh, uh, we are, uh, w which uh, we repeatedly do. So uh, could you please talk about, uh, about this more to get the, the, uh, the, 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 that meaning? Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm not an expert in Arabic culture. You, you yeah, are the but, experts. But I mean, the, from your perspective. <laughs> yes. Um, what, what I will say is that uh, with working with my Arabic colleagues uh, around the world, that there is a, a, a need to think through also the challenges that Arabic societies face as well, or Muslim societies. Um, and um, we all know about um, learning these values is difficult. And um, I was visiting two uh, schools uh, in Auckland, uh, Al-Medina and Zayed, who are uh, Muslim schools. And their challenge, of course, was how do you manage to um, learn some of those key Arabic values, tabaya, in a different culture? And um, not only those values, but also those values of the treaty obligations. It was almost learning three cultures and mixing those all together. And I think we tend to think that in the Arabic cultures, you don't have any of those challenges. We tend to think that you have a, a very s simple culture and everything's the same. But I do recall visiting with my colleague Mohammed Abdullah um, in, in the Middle East, and we found many of the challenges about how to, uh, he called it, uh, a, a revival of um, Islamic pedagogy in the schools. There are challenges faced in the Arabic schooling system just as there are challenges here and they can be connected with mobile phones. And, you know, this kind of fear of the kids are lost in this online world is always there. But what I think is important is to look at the similarities. And I think this whole idea of character building and the whole point of education in an Arabic system is not actually that different from what we actually do here. And I think those challenges of managing behavior and teaching people how to manage their own behavior, I think those are almost global or humanistic. The ways we do it is slightly different, and I think we can learn from each other. So I think there's a lot we can learn from our colleagues across the seas, but we probably don't know enough. And that's where I would hope that we could do more to build those bridges and have um, more students visiting us from the Middle East. That, I think, is crucial. Um, I think, can I comment on that with the permission of the Dean and the PC? See, Terpia is, uh, is basically, uh, as you heard that, uh, is, is in, in our Arabic world, is that how 
grandkids teach the kids that how to do things. Our parents stay there and give their time and uh, tell them the stories. And I, I, can, I can say it with a very um, assurity that uh, Professor Stefan had been living too close to the, to the Middle East friends. And you could see one of the things that he has been telling stories in his, in his lecture. And it's also holy, our Quran, our holy book, the, the Tarbiyah that we give us, the education gives us with the stories. If you look at the holy book of Quran, it's most of the whole Quran, if you read it, is in the stories. And similarly with the Bible as well, there are the stories there, but because I have read most of my life on a Quran, so I can say that, uh, that uh, Quran's with the stories, and we learn with those, those things, then as soon we have that uh, uh, interconnection with the other cultures and other people, and we learn, and we will get those, uh, what they call it, we learn new things from it as well. So I'm glad that uh, Professor Stephen is on the same path, learning stories and explaining through the stories as well. So thank you. Thank you, Tahir. Uh, Stephen, you gave a little detail about how the Norwegian educational system changed. Um, could you talk a, a little more specifically about some of the things that happened in that educational system that might be generalizable? That was a difficult question. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how much I would say it would change, but there's a, di a discussion always about the value-based role of education against what I call the curriculum strengths. And um, I did use that picture of the Norwegians who were happy because they were better in mathematics. And I think there was a, a certain level of rebalancing which had to happen because in the global debate on education, we tend to talk about literacy and numeracy and of course science. And then of course you can go on about STEAM, which is the arts piece as well. And um, they were always there. And one of my key points is that, it, and this was important as well, you can't leave the moral-based education only to the, the social studies. It has to take place within all subjects. That there are, in, within science, there is also a moral base to a highest degree. Um, climate change is about morals. And I think that is what also happened within society was there was a feeling that you couldn't pocket or put these questions of what happened into one subject area. And it was a responsibility of everybody. One of the key things there was um, how do you help and support the teachers who had to then talk to the children the weekend afterwards? And that was a big issue here as well. There's a tendency to role in the psychiatrists and the catastrophe psychiatrists and psychologists. And there was a point here about how do you support the teachers in the schooling system being able to have those conversations. So it was more about what I would call the generalist, the teacher's professional understanding, which goes across subjects. And often in the way we do teacher education, there is a challenge because we have to cover so many areas. And all of my very skilled colleagues here would be aware of that challenge. So the rebalance was it was made an everybody's job, not just the job of a few people. And that was embedded in the curriculum, that moral base of things. That's another lecture. <laughs> but but, but I, I would say that, uh, again, this is the thing I think we all tend to think, and what I, what I have noticed as well coming from Scandinavia, where they, they have two discussions in, 
in academia. One is you've got to publish as much as possible in English in order to be a recognized academic. But you've also got the opposite where actually to make your name is to not publish in English, to be recognized within your language group. And I think that is the, the big challenge for academia and this institution as well, and that's not unusual, that the Anglo-Saxon way of everything is in English means you don't always explore what is in other cultures. We're reliant on the translations. And, and I come back to the earlier point, I think it's, there's a lot to learn from the other cultures and the other ways of tackling these debates. So for me, I often read a lot of other linguistic uh, cultures for my uh, inspiration um, and, and I always think that's important but you are reliant on translations so I don't have any particular one thing I follow no. but a good question Thank you for that I want to follow up on um, your response to Jennifer's question about the idea of uh, responsibility for moral education being threaded through and being everyone's responsibility um, I guess my question is whose morals and whose values, and I think that's always an issue. It's, it's inscribed in the curriculum whether we recognise it or not, and so I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about you know, how, how we grapple with that, and perhaps you mentioned quite early on uh, the idea of independent thinking, and so what's the role of critical thinking perhaps within that as a critically thinking about those morals and values um, yeah, and who gets to decide? I, I, I think um, that's a good question. Uh, I don't have a, a, a view that there is only one way. I think if we are educationalists and say there is only one way, then we're not being uh, good educators. And, and I think what I was trying to end here was talk about that how do we manage resentment, resentment. Because we could, as teachers say, and we could spend all of our time trying to remove all forms of noise in classrooms, all forms of disruption, all forms of, I say, bullying, etc. And I think that's a noble intention. But the reality is that people have to learn to manage those events as well. And I think that's really important. And I can see one of my colleagues who's put her hand up, who, who has a big project about um, war and peace in, in the kindergarten, is the name of the project. And it's, it's very interesting to watch small children learning to negotiate the social space of what is permitted and not permitted. And it's often you learn from your mistakes. And I think that's what's crucial here is that within that learning space of schools, kindergartens, uh, and society, that it is important to find the opportunities where you can actually learn through uh, risk-taking, but not risk-taking which hurts other people. And that's the fine line. Uh, it's about being able to learn from your mistakes. And I often say it, it's how you address your mistakes which shows your moral character, not the opposite of never making mistakes. So I think it's very difficult in a, in a, a curriculum sense. Um, you can't go out and say, well, we're going to let people be violent. Of course not. But we have to learn how to manage and cope with these things. Uh, whether it's independence, I'm not so sure. I think independence is often a myth. We were always wedded in weaves of social networks with people. I, I think independence is a myth. Thank you, Stephen. Um, and thank you for referring to the project I've been involved with on warrant peace in the nursery. And um, the reason I put my hand up earlier was um, in relation to a comment you made earlier on in your speech about belonging, the importance of belonging. 
And I think um, that's, that's a value. Uh, and it's, a it's actually one of the building blocks of the early childhood curriculum in this country, which um, has been recognized worldwide as being um, um, a paradigm-shifting curriculum in the sense that it doesn't talk about subjects, like you were saying, closed-off social studies, but it talks about principles of belonging, well-being, and so on. So, in, in relation to the comment about uh, whose moral values, whose principles, I think we do have um, quite a few starting points in this country that, that we could build on. Um, looking at your questions, what are the moments of silence in all cultures? In early childhood settings, for example, there are lots of moments which could be silent, but can also be filled by presence that responds to the emotions that exist, even if they're not well articulated. Uh, and that's one thing we're finding in our projects, that as an adult, as a teacher, being uh, present to the emotions that are expressed by children who may not have a common language, for example, and are wanting to interact, um, being present and allowing um, space for those, those emotions to exist and then help children to deal with them is incredibly um, powerful. Um, and, okay, um, it's a small example from an early childhood uh, position, but the, the, the link between that and focusing as teachers in every sphere that we work, early childhood, primary, secondary, higher education, on the relationship and allowing people to feel that sense of belonging and finding the strategies that allow that is perhaps a, a, a starting point. I know that belonging has become a big theme, for example, in, and there's a conference going on, Reconceptualizing Early Childhood Education in New Mexico right now, and many of the papers are about belonging, de dealing with the issues that are being faced in the US by refugees, etc. So um, there are places to start, I suppose. I wonder if you wanted to talk a bit more about belonging yourself. Hmm. I'm, I'm very conscious of having taken so much of everybody's time, um, and I'd be very happy to continue the conversation over tea and coffee. And I do believe we have some tea and coffee, and you're going to make some closing comments? Tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto. Kia ora, good morning, everyone. Um, it's, uh, it's been great to see the top leadership uh, here, Provost Chancellor, Dean, Excellencies from Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE, and uh, we got the head of the uh, deputy mission in uh, Turkey as well. Well, we we learned something from here, and why this lecture was the importance of education because we there was a very important event that took place. Uh, for the Muslims, this is very important what happened on 15th of March, and this will be stays in a history for us forever. Not only for the Muslims, uh, as uh, New Zealanders, that we, we, we have to learn something from it. We can't really just let it go. Just it's only a matter of only less than a year. And uh, I can see that how the New Zealand is responding um, to it until now, because we get, I, mean, I, in my position, I'm getting invitation on daily basis uh, that uh, the people want to know about it. And that's part of the education that, that learning from it, not letting it go. Letting it go. Um, 
I, uh, during the lecture, I, I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, um, Professor Eva explained three stories. Uh, there's a similarity that how our holy book um, goes with the stories as well. And this is one of the best way to, to do the education as well. And in terms of similarity, what we have uh, in what happened in, uh, in Christchurch in Norway, there we can see there's a lot of similarities there. Uh, but the important is how New Zealand has responded to it. Um, and uh, as we are here as a, as a diplomatic corps here, and uh, important thing is that how we will pass on this, this education to the next, uh, because I'm pretty sure because I work with them and I meet the excellencies very quite often because they have to advise the policy in, for their countries as well. And similarly, uh, as a student, so and as, as a educational staff, um, we have to make sure that um, um, we be aware of that why this thing happened, how we can control this racism, and to be more inclusive in society as a, as a local Tangata Fenawa. And uh, uh, for the, um, for, for to include all, all the different cultures together and have that more diversified culture here as well. So I would like to say thank you, Professor Stephen, and giving me the opportunity to be here. Thank you very much. To stay up to date with the latest cutting edge research from Victoria University of Wellington, subscribe now through iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast provider. Thanks to Te Koki New Zealand School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stephen Patton for the use of their music. Victoria University of Wellington, capital thinking, globally minded.